Welcome to the Sports Equity Podcast. Here we talk to special guests from teams, brands, and agencies to discuss the value that sports brings to business through current trends and best practices with your host, Brett Weisbrot. Our guest has spent the past 20 plus years coaching, training, and developing people both in life and sport with an authentic leadership approach and a trailblazer in professional football here today to share her story. We welcome Dr. Jen Walter to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. Thank you. So some people call you Dr. Jen. Some people call you Coach Jen. What do you prefer? Well, you know, I tend to say it's a little bit of both, and thankfully they are not mutually exclusive. Um, but when I'm on the field, it's it's natural to call somebody coach, right? That's a, a statement of regard. Um, and so I, um, I, I lovingly take both, although one of my favorite responses I ever got was when I was with the Arizona Cardinals and Sean Witherspoon insisted on calling me Dr. J. And it's clearly because there's a resemblance between me and the original Dr. J. Obviously, I'm five foot two and he's what, seven feet. So, you know, height runs in the family, at least in my mind. Um, so depends on who you ask. That's awesome. So, you know, talking about sports, you know, where were you first introduced to sports? Uh, well, sports is always a part of my life. My family's really active. Um you know, um, my dad was a collegiate wrestler. My mom was a horseback rider going up, growing up. So being physically active was a part of everything that we've done throughout my life. Um, my first real sports competition was actually um, a school fun run. Um, I think I was in kindergarten or first grade and my older sister and my dad had been training for it and I I wanted to run with them and you know my dad was like oh you know Jenny your sister and I have been training for this um you know if you run that's fine but you know you gotta run with your friends I was like great I think he thought I would slow them down but it ended up that uh my friends and I finished before him um so from that moment on, he knew he was dealing with a kind of a special kind of crazy in me. That's amazing. And growing up, you know, I guess whether it was sports or not, you know, what was your dream job when you were young, when you were little? Um, I always imagined I'd be um, some kind of either a pro athlete or an actress. I lovingly say I get to do a little bit of both now in uh, my role in this world, whether it's um, speaking or entertaining and then you know, performing as an athlete, but I, I really wanted to be a pro tennis player when I was younger. And I think it was tennis for me because that was the first sport that I really remember seeing women on TV. And to me, those women were everything a woman should be right. Like Gabriella Sabatini, Zena Garrison, Steffi Graf, you know, they were beautiful and strong and majestic and powerful. And I just thought that's, that's who I want to be in the world. That's great. So, you know, studying sports psychology at Capella University, how did that start to transition you and affect you both personally and professionally? Well, so for me, um, I got my, my master's in sports psychology and then my PhD while I was playing football. And what, what kind of 
prompted me to do that is that at that time, there was not a, like a career path for a woman in football. Um, and so I thought if I could study the psychology of the game and, you know, pair that theoretical knowledge with my practical experience, I would be a unique value proposition to the sport. And so it was, you know, the game and the game within the game. And I would try even the things that I was learning in school out in my own game to see how they wor would work, see how I could make myself better and, and really put the things I was learning in school into practice in my own game. And then obviously took that knowledge and experience and brought it into the games of other people. And early on with, you know, wanting to work around athleticism and people, um, I know you worked in, you know, doing some personal training and cardiovascular aerobics training, you know, what drove you to those areas at the time? I first got certified to teach aerobics when I was 18 years old. And I felt like I was cheating the system really, because they were paying me to work out and I love to work out. So I might as well make a job of it. And then it was something that stayed with me throughout my athletic career because I could, you know, create classes with uh, physical activities that were supporting what I wanted to do as one of the best athletes in the world as all or as well. And in 2020, a lot of these online and on-demand trainers are, are doing pretty well career-wise teaching classes. Yes, yes, they are. And I remember telling people years ago, that there should be online mechanisms that we could do what we do when we weren't limited to class size and geography. So it's, you know, it's great to see that um, that industry really just taking off now. So in 2014, you became the first female to play men's professional football for the Texas Revolution um, and, and they were indoor football. You know, how did you first come across that opportunity? Well, first, let me clarify. I was the first woman to play running back in men's row football. Um, there were kickers who came before me and other women who have done great things in football. I just happened to be in that position. Uh, so I never want to take the shine away from the other women whose, you know, whose strong shoulders we've all built off. And I certainly am, am not immune to that. Um, but that came out of, you know, really the Dallas connection of football and, at that time in Dallas, Texas, I was, you know, I was among the best in the game, but I was certainly one of the best known because uh, I had done a good job of really putting the fact that I was a football player first. So if people knew women in football, they likely knew me as being one of them. And um, when the Texas Revolution wanted to meet with me, it was interesting because it was actually, um, you know, they wanted me to go through a day training camp with the guys. And as someone who had just won my second gold medal, um, that was an insult. And I said, no, I said, that's an insult to me as somebody who just won my second gold medal. And if I was any one of your guys on your team, I would absolutely hate it. If you want to do anything with me and your football team, either I do everything they do step for step, hit for hit for all the training camp, or I do nothing. And it was really at that point that things got serious and um, I caught the attention of the head coach and got his buy-in because before that moment, he was not thrilled about it. Um, and it was one of the best things in my life, um, you know, to take that opportunity to, 
not let it just be something where I was used to be out there for publicity and to not only go through all of training camp, but to go through the entire season with the guys was really what ended up opening the door to coaching. And it made me a better person. Um, and if you ask the guys, they say it made them better people as well. So. And for those that don't know, at this point, you had spent how many years playing professionally women's football at that point? Uh, 14. Wow. Long time. That's great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're on the roster that full season in 2014, which is an accomplishment of its own. How did it feel the last game of that season to walk out as a captain on the field? Um, it, you know, it was crazy. Um, it was, it was really the highest compliment that they could have given because, you know, obviously I wasn't the stats leader. I'd been, you know, among the stats leaders in, in tackles and takedowns and women's football, um, many times, but to walk out on the field with those men as a captain, um, not just simply because of how I played, but because who I, who I was to that team was just an amazing feeling. And I remember earlier in that season, kind of the, the statement that solidified it for me or, or really encapsulates it for me is, you know, coach Dub said, you know, Welter, if I could take the heart out of your chest and put it into each one of these guys, we'd be undefeated. And to me, that's what it was all about, right? Um, could we not only play football at a high level, but could we change the way that people looked at football and could football be a catalyst um, for social change in our society? Right, the passion and the want to, that goes a really long way. Absolutely. So that next season, you joined their coaching staff, right? Break, like breaking the glass ceiling. You know, what was it like to be on the sideline coaching in, in one of the things you love most? Um, kind, of, kind of dreamy. Um, you know, I could take all the things in my mind that had made me one of the best in the world at five foot two and um, put it in the heart or in the, in, into action with all these men. And um, it was kind of like you've, you've got a robot control of a of a big destructo <coughs> destructo guy, and and he's able to do what you always in your mind hoped you would. So a very good cool feeling. So you know, in coaching and with these players, whether it's now or opportunities from this opportunity moving forward, you know, what's one or two non-negotiable characteristics you expect of the athletes you work with or recruit? You know, I think it's funny. Um, obviously, you have to have the physical characteristics and the and the physical ability. Um, but I think coach-athlete relationships are founded when done well on trust and love, right? Like you trust that I'm going to give you the very best that I have. And that doesn't mean that it's going to 100% um, work out or that I'm perfect in the you know, breakdown or this, that, and the other, but you know that I've given you the very best that I could come across. And, you know, we love each other enough to get through a bad day, right? Like you say something or I say something and it doesn't come off right. And it's, and it's not about, oh, this is a bad person. It's about like, hey, are you doing okay? Like, what do we need to do to get there? And so it's really the relationship 
um, of trust and love, and then the the want to, right? Like really the, I want to get better. I want you to make me better. I'm going to push myself within those parameters to, to do that, whether it's, you know, do a drill differently or, or do a drill again, um, watch the tape, get in and assess things. So the want to, the will to get better, and then the investment in the relationship. Interesting. Interesting. You say that because you have had more experience on the field where my experience in sports has been off the field, more from a sales capacity and the passion and the want to, and the it factor is, is, is much valuable in recruiting good salespeople as it is in the people you want defending the ball on the field. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and that's why a lot of athletes, um, when they finish playing at whatever level that was, um, do very well in sales, uh, because that competitive spirit is, you know, is something that they have. They want to be the best. They want to get better. They, you know, want to hold up their end to a team, you know, kind of all of those things. Yeah, my, my greatest mentor and my favorite manager of all time was a collegiate baseball player, pitched, played some infield, right? You know, you translate those skills and you take that want to into something that, you know, you can still pour your heart into and, and see the results of it and be there with, you know, to enjoy it. So, you know, that's really exciting. You know, so you set a precedence, you know, with both playing, coaching, indoor football, you know, that was something special. But in 2015, you know, you really made more of a national, international name for yourself joining the Arizona Cardinals, leading the linebackers on defense, becoming the first female coach in NFL history. You know, how has that opportunity affected your life, both past and present? Um, you know, it was bigger than I could have ever imagined. Um, definitely not the, something I aspired to do, and yet, what I love about it is though it's not a dream that I had, now it's a dream that every little girl can have, right? She can look at the football field and say, I can be there. I belong there. If that's where you want to be, um, I can be there. And so um, I think the way that it affects me the most is being somebody who gives hope to others. Um, and then um, it also pushes me um, to continue to work, to be that person and to do things that I may not even know, um, that I have the ability to do, but, you know, then I look around and I'm like, well, who else is going to do it? Okay. Well, I guess it's me. So I got to figure it out. Um, whether it's creating opportunities for girls, whether it's, you know, standing up and, and being a voice, whether it's, um, pushing for change or calling BS. Like I, I just have a, a really strong feeling of, of who that person should be in this world. And um, I've always kind of looked at it as like, if, if I don't have the, the guts to do it, um, then the wrong woman was the first female to coach in the NFL and somebody else should have been in that position. And when you think back to that time of your life, you know, what memory sticks out or what's something you like to share from that opportunity? Mm. There's so many, right? Like it, in a way it feels like yesterday. Um, and then in, in other ways, it feels like a dream. Um, 
you know, it's so vivid and powerful and yet um, it feels like it was so long ago. Um, but, you know, the things that really stand out to me um, are like, you know, shaking hands with Sarah Thomas at our first game. Her first game was my first game and us standing there on the sidelines. And, it, you know, it's so awkward because they're like, you're going to accidentally on purpose uh, shake hands with this person right here in precisely like, you know, 67 seconds. And you're like, accidentally, like this is weird. And, um, you know, I just remember saying, I guess I said that to Sarah, uh, like first thing is like, well, this isn't a little bit awkward, is it? And um, she told me that the other day when she was telling me that she was going to ref in the Super Bowl this, this coming time. And she's like, when you said that, it just set me so at ease because you said what I wanted to say, but I didn't know if I could say it because we were all mic'd up and, um, and she's like, and you just, you just went ahead and said it. And I was like, okay, we're going to be okay. Kind of thing. And, um, I hadn't even really remembered saying that to her, but the fact that it stood out to her, it was like, you know, that's, that's kind of the person, um, that I am. And she's like, and you've been that person ever since that day right? Speaking up, calling it how it is and um, whether it was a little bit awkward on this, this meeting or, or other things. Um, it's moments like the, I think the first guy that I met um, or literally like ran into was Calais Campbell. And I was like turning a corner and I pretty much think I ran into his belly button because you know, Calais like six foot seven. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I mean, cause we didn't actually hit, but we were like, you know, like this, like, like this, I should say. And, you know, it's like right there. And he just looked down and he was like, coach Jen, I've been looking forward to meeting you, you know? And like, oh my goodness. Right. Like, you know, just those moments and then being able to show Calais, I'm like, how tall are you again? You're six foot seven. He's like, yeah, coach. And showing him a picture of, um, the player on team Germany that I had to go against that was six foot seven. He's like, no way you could not have gone against a six foot seven woman. I'm like, I'm serious. And we sat there and I showed him, he's like, man, coach, that's so cool. Right. Like, and then running into him at the pro bowl this past year and him still recognizing my voice, you know um, it's moments like sitting in the golf cart, driving from um, the team hotel to um, at that time, it was University of Phoenix Field. And those being like the only moments that you really have one-on-one -on -one conversations because every every other time, like there's a ton of people around and, you know, it would be like me driving in the golf cart with Larry Foote and um, just how easy he was with it and, and what a great mentor and, um, you know, just so many things that, the beauty was in the simplicity of them. Um, I don't think it was, I don't know that it was huge things like most people would think of. It was, um, you know, coaching up, uh, uh, running a drill on the first, first minute of the first day, right? And um, Larry Foote had me being the rabbit and I was setting the stage for the drill and, if I cut a certain way, they were supposed to go outside the cone and Kevin Minter was leading the drill and he like ran straight into me. And, you know, everybody was like, 
it was like the collective gasp, right? (laughs) And I just start laughing because, you know, this is football. This is, this is what we do. And I'm thinking, guys, I played football against dudes. Like this is nothing, right? We're going to be just fine. And all of those moments where it was like, just normal and funny and human and, um, and beautiful all at the same time. Those are the things that stand out to me and the, um, I think the things that I cherish the most. Um, you know, speaking of being human, is there anyone whose personality at the time like really struck you? Like you were surprised that, you know, someone was outgoing or funny or, you know, just didn't know what to expect? You know, all the guys are so good in so, in such different ways. Um, I never had any personality like conflicts, which is the first thing I would say. Um, but, you know, Kevin Minter is like really quiet and introspective. Um, Calais, um, he is just such a, a big loving spirit. He thinks about everybody around him and how he can be a great leader. And, you know, he was a captain and he would ask me questions about leadership and, and how to be a great captain. Um, Larry Fitzgerald is, you know, and it shouldn't be surprising to anybody that he is the absolute pros pro. Um, but as he would catch like his 100 extra pa- uh, jugs after practice every day, he would be like, okay, doc, come over here. Let me ask you some questions. I read this in psychology. Like, I want to talk about this. And, you know, we really never talked about football. And we talked about how he's traveled to over a hundred countries and he just has a really curious mind. Um, And I loved that about him. He always had a different question. He was going to grill me on um, if he called me over to keep him company with the jugs. Um, And then uh, Ty Matthew, I think is one that um, he is, you know, he definitely coming out of college was misunderstood, you know, kind of that bad boy. Um, and yet there was a reason why Pat P stood on the table for him. Cause that kids as can I say kid lovingly, like that man is, um, he's one of the best I've ever been around. Um, he studies hard, he breathes the game and he can play in a lighthearted yet devastating manner because he knows his opponents so well. It almost reminds me of like, um, if you've been around Floyd Mayweather and you appreciate him as a boxer, how he kind of almost looks like he's toying with folks. Like, you know, he's like almost laughing at him because he's so good and it's so smooth um, and he reads it so fast. And that's Ty Matthew. Like he's done his homework. You you might think that he takes the game light because of, you know, the nickname Honey Badger and some of those things. Um, but there's a reason why at five foot eight, that guy is so devastating and he can pick you off one play and sack you the next. Like he is, he is special. Um, and I could say something along those lines to, to every player that I've really been around, you know, cause they're so different and, you lose the beauty of the real differences and the real humans under the helmet, right? Because you don't, you don't really get to see that from football players. 
That's great. Yeah, it's funny you mentioning that because like I think about, you know, when you mentioned Larry Fitzgerald, he's someone I know that's you know just so smart that puts everything into everything that he does. And it's curious whether it's this year, next year, whenever he decides, you know, what his next career is going to be. And he's going to excel at that 150% the same way catching a ball on and off the field, whatever he does, because he's literally just that like the want to and and being smart on top of that. Yep. I remember us talking one day and he looked at me and he's like, you know, coach, I never should have showed BA I could block. And I started laughing. I was like, uh, that's not true because it reinvented your career. But I do understand what you're saying, because I know when you're blocking, when you do a certain thing, which I won't say on here, that it's totally a run to your side. And he started laughing. He's like, yeah, pretty much. I'm like, yeah, I know. I watch him on defense. That's what we have to look for. Uh, that's the practice against him <laughs> right but I mean but you know you think about it um a receiver at his caliber to have been used in a blocking way because of his just sheer strength and athleticism that doesn't happen a lot of the times right like you know a lot of receivers you know they they sort of pretend like they might trip into a block sometimes but you can tell it's not it's not important to them. And what I love about Fitz is he will block as ferociously as he will um, go up for a jump ball, right? Because it matters to him. And that's what makes him such a good teammate. Yeah, the other thing before we get off of the Fitz topic is I remember over the years, they've had some of these different sports science shows on TV. And they've talked about sports science with someone like Larry, where like the, how he literally in his mind slows down the ball, like when he goes for the catch. And to me, like just even the thought process or how you have the ability to do that has been able to help him step aside and, and stand apart in the game different than most receivers during his career. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, he catches 100 extra passes after every practice. Think about how many passes that is over the course of a career. Wow. That's his choice. Right. Like, and, and no, it was five years ago. I can't promise you. Um, Cause I have not been at the practices since I was there that he does it, but I can tell you, he does it. Right. I, I would be shocked if he wasn't still doing it. So looking back on the role in Arizona, is there anything that you would have done differently? Yeah. I would have had the opportunity to be there indefinitely. Um, you know, but that wasn't up to me. Um, and I think that that's a hard thing um, is that it, you know, when you have a contract position, um, it, it has a start date and an end date. And what's hard about that. And I remember talking to, um, to Corey Redding about that, right. And Corey Redding, I think at that time was about a 10 year veteran. And, you know, you asked me about personalities and, as I said, like all of them surprised me in, in wonderful and, and different ways. Um, but, you know, everybody has a different timetable for how they're going to come around to somebody. And C-Red and I were always cool, right? Like we were always cool. But there was one day when he was just like, man, coach, I just, I appreciate how you are. You're all in for everybody all the time. And it doesn't matter if they're a starter or someone else. He's like, you're just, you're just good to everybody. You just check on them. It's just natural for you. Um, and you, you're, you're all in. And I was like, well, yeah, like 
what else am I going to do? Right. Like I, I don't actually know how to do it any other way. And he was like, yeah, I know. He's like, I used to be like that earlier in my career coach, but you know, you know, as well as I do, like there's heartbreak when it ends. And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, I've kind of gotten to the point where um, I won't really let myself get attached to guys until they make the squad because, you know, it just hurts. It hurts if you had a rookie that you liked and you built into, and then he gets cut. And he's like, but you, you know that there's an end date. And so it would be real easy to come in here and, you know, just kind of be half here. And he's like, and I've never seen that in you. Not, not in one moment, not in one thing that you do. He's like, you're every extra minute you have, you're like either investing in a player or studying plays. I swear, I mean, it would have, what good am I if I'm not going to be here? And he was like, you know, it's like, how do you do that? And I said, I would rather um, live in every moment and love it really hard and be, you know, heartbreaking, heartbroken at the end, but knowing that, you know, I can't regret not doing what I was here to do. Right. It's not a regret of me saying like, you know, if only I would have worked harder, then I would still be there. That's 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 what I couldn't live with. And I just remember he kind of like nodded his head and he was like, man, now I'm going to have to go ahead and watch your game film. And we all know as like athletes, that's a huge show of respect. And that's his way of telling me that I had gotten to him just a little bit. Um, and we've been friends ever since then, but, um, you know, that, that's what I would change. It's like, um, having it not have ended. That's fair. So in 2017, you were named to the advisory board of the pro football hall of fame in Canton. How did you react to getting that call? Um, you know, Canton has a special place in my heart, um, First being that I, you know, there haven't been women there um, in the past. And I got to go there and work with the Hall of Fame Academy as a coach one summer uh, per the recommendation of another coaching buddy of mine, which I was, you know, just extremely flattered um, to get the opportunity to go and work with some of the top at that time high school players in the country. And um, <clears throat> when I got there, you know, I met a lot of the people in the museum and there were a lot of women who worked at the Hall of Fame and they were so thrilled to meet me. And they told me the story about when, you know, my shirt and Sarah Thomas's um, hat and flag got there and how they were so thrilled because it was the first time that, you know, for on the field football stuff, um, meaning, you know, within the lines of the game kind of thing, as opposed to, you know, there were some, um, like, I think there was a dress from one of the Saturday night uh, or Sunday night football songs and some different stuff, but like, you know, as a coach and as a ref, that was the first time that they'd had um, women represented 
and how they had to to send and get a bust that was cut for a female shirt um, because they didn't have anything that they could display my shirt on. First of all, it's smaller than the guys' ones, but also it was, you know, a different cut shirt. And hearing how much it meant to them really showed me how much work we had to do in that respect so that everybody was represented. And so um, it was, it was David Baker who asked me if I would, you know, uh, join an advisory board there. And um, it was thrilling and it was right at the same time, you know, it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't about me. It was about the voices of all of those women right? Who had told me how much it meant to finally see a woman there. And um, it's a way to, to make sure that um, women and girls are, have voices in those conversations of representation um, in the place that, you know, honors the heroes of the game. And there are heroes in the game of football that are men, granted, and we know them. But there's also heroes in the game that are women. And um, I want to help expand the recognition for those women. So I kind of feel like it was an opportunity to speak for all of them. Yeah, and I think with the amount of people that engage into a property like Canton when families go to visit or anyone for that matter, there's such a diverse audience that females want to see females succeed, right? And there's an aspect of going there and seeing that that some people even learn for the first time in engaging that property. Absolutely. And so, you know, if we want, you know, we want American football to grow, well, the growth market is women. So, you know, so let's make sure that, that women have a place and a space in, in every property, in every area. Yep. So in 2018, you continue to coach on the field, becoming the defensive specialist for the Atlanta Legends at the time with the Alliance of American Football. What did that role look like? Um, you know, it, it was great. Um, Brad Childress brought me in. Um, I met Chili when, um, when, um, uh, <coughs> actually, uh, Arizona played Kansas city in my first game. And I was introduced to Chili by Daryl Drake, who's one of my mentors. And he said, you know, Chili's good dude. Chili could hire you one day. You need to meet him. And, um, and it was, it was sad to me because we lost Drake recently, but he was one of those guys who always wanted to see me in the game and, and reinforce that I belong there. So to be able to have that opportunity to join Chile there really meant a lot to me. And, you know, I ended up um, coaching D-line um, and it was a great and very different experience, you know, um, one of the things I had talked to Chile about is, you know, in a feeder league, what's really important to understand is that none of these guys set up to be here, right? This was not their ultimate dream. Their ultimate dream is the NFL, right? And so for all of these guys, there's a certain degree of heartbreak and we have to teach them to fall in love again, to get them to the level that they want to be at. And our D-line group 
um, was one of the closest groups on the team. And every, every one of those guys at least was in camp somewhere or got to play at another level. We had a bunch of guys in the XFL, we had a bunch of guys in, in camps um, on NFL teams the next year. And then we had CFL guys as well. And to me, that means we were successful, right? That team in the organization, boy, it was tough, right? It was a startup from, you know, you have all rookies and all of these things, but um, we grew so close together and to see them all get a chance to play elsewhere. To me, that means we, we were very successful. And whether it was Kalias or other defensive linemen you had worked with over the years, or even just things on your own, you know, where did you feel like you made the biggest impact with your players on that side of the ball? Hmm. Um, probably really seeing them as people before players. Um, you know, there, there's very real people who are executing every play. And to get the most out of them, I think it's really important to know them as individuals um, and to work with them on, on where they are and where they want to be. Um, and I think that, um, that that being the foundation of our relationships allowed me to help them with what they needed because it's not about me. It's about you know, what do we need to do as a team to execute and how, how can I best help you as a coach? And throughout all these years of coaching, who would you say has had the biggest impact on your career? Um, you know, there have been a lot, right? Um, I think of um, all of the coaches I played for had, had an impact one way or another. Um, Coach Dub had an impact to bring me into the revolution. Wendell Davis had an impact to insist that I should coach and wouldn't take no from me for an answer. Bruce Arians had a big impact to open that door. Larry Foot built, built into me on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, coach Drake pushed me to um, realize that my PhD was important. And that was before the mental health conversation was really um, being had. Um, and he told me he felt like every team needed that. So he encouraged me to stay true to my voice. Um, and then, you know, I have coaches like, um, you know, like Anthony Stone, John Konecki, who were my team USA coaches in 2010. Um, and then they were my offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator when I was the head coach of team Australia. And, you know, I look at them and it's funny because coach Konecki, who was the head coach used to tell me he hated my face all the time. And it was because I used to mess up his offenses. So I'm like, you should hate my face. If you like my face, it's a really big problem because I'm on defense. Right. And coach stone uh, was one of my favorite coaches I ever got to play for because the questions that I asked, he loved to answer. He never like was like, oh, that's a terrible question or why are you being difficult? He invested back into me. And then when Team Australia was a possibility, right? Um, and we were talking about going there as a group, you know, 
it was those guys who said, you know, Welter, you have to be the head coach and we'll support you um, in everything that, in everything that you need. And I, I wouldn't have taken that opportunity as a head coach if I didn't know how very, very good they were. And for them to, you know, both being more experienced coaches than I was, right? But for them to say how important it was um, to go as a unit and for the world to see um, a female head coach, like those are all things that stand out to me um, and ways that, you know, people have fought to um, elevate me. So I, I couldn't say one, but there are, there are so many who have been, you know, so good for different ways and pushed me um, and pulled me and drop kicked me to success. Right. And I think the same goes for you, right. You know, giving back mentoring, which I know is very important to you um, teaching females, the game of football, even more so over the past few years, you've been building gridiron girls. Can you tell us a little more about this? Sure. So I, um, I founded gridiron girls <coughs> three and a half years ago now, I guess. Um, because there was no national movement for girls, um, you know, younger girls uh, in playing flag football or football specifically. And to me, it was a really important element of the game. And I say it's confidence through football and teaching the girls that there is no game they cannot play and no field they do not belong in or on. And the reason I say that is because my goal is to give girls an opportunity to feel like they're on equal footing, to have a great football day, to know that with great coaching, you can learn to do anything because that's important. And in the sport they call the final frontier for women in sports, it's like, that was always a challenge to me, right? Like if we could win here, then, you know, couldn't we do anything? And so for the girls, that's what it's about. Because when I looked at the market at that time, yes, there were co-ed camps. But if you had a, a camp of like 200, uh, you might have two, or if you were really lucky, four girls, which means one to 2%. And those girls were the outliers. They were the bold ones. They were the ones who maybe had brothers or you couldn't tell them anything. But think how many girls might've tried it if they felt like they weren't behind. And in a lot of those situations, they are just because the girls hadn't been socialized the same way as the boys. So you go into a camp like that and the boys have learned things, whether it was from a dad or somebody else, right? How to catch, how to throw basics. Then you go into a camp and they get to work on it harder. You get a girl who's never had any exposure or even the basics teachings. And what does she hear? Oh, you throw like a girl. Or you catch like a girl. No, I'm sorry. You don't throw like a girl or catch like a girl. You either throw a football or you don't. You either catch it or it's dropped. And there are good ways to get better at catching. But if the girls don't have some of that foundation, those situations are really intimidating. So we wanted to make sure that they had the foundations that then gave them the confidence that if they wanted to continue to play football, they had a good start. Um, even if they wanted to just play street ball with the boys or go in and step into gym class, they knew they had the fundamentals to get 
to get on the right foot. And we've had um, just some amazing, I mean, we've had countless amazing girls, but we've had some amazing stories. Um, you know, one girl got sent from Canada. She played on a boys team. Her name was Taya. And um, they fundraised to send her to one of my camps. Now she is like coaching with her dad, right? Cause she's older. Uh, we have a girl named Jada who came to our Miami camp um, that we did at Liberty city with uncle Luke. And she is playing in the first season of the NAIA having um, flag football as a varsity sport. So Jada is playing for St. Thomas university. Um, and you know, I couldn't be more proud. Right. And we have girls like Kaylee who started, I think she was five when she came to my first camp. And now she's like playing on all these traveling camps at eight years or traveling teams at eight years old. And, you know, she's like, she's a great ambassador because she's always like, we're your squad. You know that we're gridiron girl squad. Right. And I'm like, you're right. You are. And I love you. And her dog's name is blitz. And I mean, you know, seeing these girls growing up with the love and the passion and the dedication to excel in the sport. What I know is that they're going to go so much further than I even dreamt possible. And that's the gift that I love to give to them. Yeah, you mentioned Florida, and I know we talked about at what a young age that that discipline and that want to for football starts. But you know, I got to give a shout out to the Parkland Flag Football League because the parents and the coaches. I mean, you know, the way they train, the way they, you know, the way they celebrate. You know, uh, you know, the girls out there are enjoying the game and playing the same way as the boys over on the next field. And you know, the more cities that that lag onto that and continue to grow that, you know, it, it creates you know, discipline, use that word again, even later and later in life scenarios. It's really for sure. Absolutely. So my last question for you would be, if you could have any coaching role in the world, what would that opportunity look like? Um, you know, right now, um, what would it look like? Um, you know, there's, there's temptations on both sides, right? Like obviously being a head co coach somewhere and being able to build a program from scratch um, and bring in, um, bring in the talent and set the culture is amazing, right? And is that possible? I always get asked by people, is that possible as a woman? Yes, it's possible. We did it with Team Australia, right? With bringing in, really amazing positional coaches and coordinators at each level um, that are on the focus of, you know, kind of having a round table of what the best is. Um, so that's one, but also on the next level, I would say it would be, um, you know, being, um, being an assistant, either D line or outside linebackers coach with, you know, somebody like, you know, you could put me back with Larry foot or um, someone like Brenton Buckner as like a D line coach where um, they like to work hand in hand and wanted to uh, personally like vest into me being a great coach. Right. And, and it, you know, I, I list those guys because I've worked with them and, you know um, I know what they coach like, but 
to me, that's what it is. Um, I know I'm bright. Um, and yet there's so much more I would want to learn. And it takes a really special human, right? And particularly in this case, um, guy, because they are guys to say, you know, I want you to um, be as good of me, as me or better than me, or I'm going to train you to continue to work with me. And I think that that's what it is. Um, and I, you know, I wish I had had that from a longevity perspective from Arizona. I wish, you know, we were there every day to this day, but to me, that's, that's what the ultimate would be. That's awesome. Well, we really appreciate you sharing your story on sports equity today. And I look forward to catching up with you in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sports Equity Podcast, where we discuss the value that sports brings to business. Follow us for new episodes on a weekly basis. See you next time.